Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Trish. And this is the Don't Give a 50 podcast. Let's make getting old the new gold, as oh, you say. I like that. I like that one too. That was mine. <laughs> that was mine. Hi, 50 Ishers. It's Mel and Trish. Welcome to this week's episode of Don't Give a 50, a podcast for midlife women who dare to be awesome and don't give a 50 like us. We'd like to send a huge thanks to Kerry Ann Pierce, who sent us a beautiful email. She wrote, Hi, girls. I absolutely love, love, love your podcast. You are both so articulate and well spoken and incredibly hilarious. Very generous of her. Very generous. I was waiting for you to interject there, Trish. (laughs) I have thoroughly enjoyed every single episode and have gained so much from listening to you and your guests. The guests and topics you have chosen are absolutely spot on. On down days, I put my earphones in, go for a walk and listen to you. And within minutes, I am smiling and laughing. Trish, you are freaking hilarious. Well done, ladies. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kerry Ann, and yes, thank you thank to you, all. Sweetheart. That was so kind. Thanks to our tribe who are listening, reaching out with feedback, leaving reviews, and spreading the word about our podcast. It helps us to create the episodes, and we're so grateful for all your support and encouragement. And on our down days, it helps us. <laughs> it does, definitely. <laughs> So you're going to love today's guest because she's an interesting woman with a very interesting story. Today, we're thrilled to be speaking with Angela Williams, a British-born Australian citizen who has experienced a life of wealth that most of us can't even fathom. Angela was born into one of England's wealthiest families. She grew up in the 70s in a seven-bedroom country home on 14 acres, complete with an underground swimming pool, gymnasium, stables, and a helicopter copter pad in the backyard. I wish we'd been mates. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. I wish I wish I knew you back then. Her father I think, was, I think we would have been friends. Yeah. Besties. Everybody says that. Yeah. Everybody wants to be my friend. Yeah. Her father was often listed in the UK's top 100 rich list with successes in both business and philanthropy work, which brought him much attention. He often reached number one in the UK for making donations to charity, giving over 550 
million. He was given the honour of becoming a lord as nominated by then Prime Minister David Cameron and approved by Queen Elizabeth II of England. In 2008, following in her father's philanthropist footsteps, Angela founded Embrace Warwickshire Limited, a charity that reaches out to the sex workers of Coventry, known to be one of the most violent cities in England. Last year, Angela released her first book called Extravagant Life to Extravagant Love and is currently writing her second book, So what's next? Angela is a passionate advocate that kindness can and will change the world. She believes our ability to change the world doesn't depend on what's in our bank accounts, but rather what's in our hearts. She relocated to Australia 10 years ago with her husband and adult son and now lives on the Sunshine Coast. Lucky us. Lucky me. (laughs) So Angela (laughs) is here in the studio with us, as you've probably already gathered. Hello and welcome to Don't Give a 50. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's such an honour to have you here. Yeah, we're stoked. This is going to be interesting. So interesting. Mm. Am, am I part of the club because I'm not quite 50? No, that's why yeah. we say 50. 50-ish. Oh, you don't have perfect. to be 50. Yeah. You're 50-ish. I'm, yeah. I'm heading that way fast. Though. Yeah, <laughs> this is just ish. And once you get there, the brilliant thing is once you get there, you're still just 50-ish. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Good. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm game. We with welcome. That. We welcome all ages to the 50 years. <laughs> yeah, we're not. We're not ageists. No, <laughs> all are welcome. Yes, it's just a mindset, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Angela, to most, the life you have experienced is extraordinary, and many would only dream and imagine what growing up amongst such wealth would be like. What was it like for you? Could you help <laughs> us imagine? And dream. <laughs> yeah, Can we guess, live it through you? Yeah. Well, I guess when you're young, you just think that that's normal life. You don't really realise it's any different to anybody else. And and it was only really as I began to get older and I began to see maybe some responses in other people of how they reacted to us and our family that I began to think, oh, okay, maybe this isn't normal. Maybe we don't live like everybody else. And I grew up with a helicopter in the backyard. My dad used to go off to work. And we lived in a big kind of country estate and with swimming pool in the in the basement. And those things were all really lovely. But my family was very much like we were very close and tight family. And, and actually we held on to good values and we made sure that we were good people that were generous, that knew what was important in life. So those things were just kind of add-ons to us. And obviously we get to enjoy them and we got to have a really beautiful lifestyle. But I think my parents were always making sure that we knew what was really, truly valuable. It was only really when other people, it was seeing other people's reaction towards us. Mm. So, for instance, we lived in like a small village and our house was a, a big house towards the outskirts of the village. And the village was like an old mining town. So people were living in sort of council housing Mm. and really were kind of hand-to-mouth living day by day. So when they'd see our family, it was a little bit confronting for them and they'd see the nice cars drive through the village. And so it was our local kind of grocery store or the local corner shop, so the the news agents, and we would often nip into there as we're on our way home. And that's when I began to notice that people began mm. to see us a little bit differently because as soon as we'd walk in there, they would just go really quiet and mm. you'd, they'd be, their eyes would be looking at you going around the store and you could hear the whispers like, oh, it's the millionaire's kids. And, mm. and, and they were all in awe of, of you. Yeah. Well, I think they just knew the who life. we were, yeah. yeah, and they were just observing. So I think I became aware that people are always watching you. Um, and Interesting. That, yeah, and that kind of made me have that sense of responsibility. 
Yeah, of. which is a lovely way to look at it. And I guess a lot of your friends or people that potentially you were hanging out with were maybe in a similar situation. So there wasn't a lot of comparison there. Uh, no, actually. No? That's not, no, we weren't. I mean, we were in most of our time, our, our social time was we were part of a church network. And so it was basically the local people. And, yeah, nice. And we grew up together and and I guess my father's wealth increased as I was growing up and so those that we I'd kind of grown up with from young, it, it didn't really make much difference. It was the new people that would come into your life Yeah, that it was probably more challenging. Yes, yeah, mm. I can see that. Angela, what were some of the things that seemed normal at the time that when you look back now you realise is actually the furthest thing from normal? Hmm. Apart from the helicopter <laughs> in the backyard. Apart <laughs> <laughs> yeah. from that. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it was just like I, th- I think what felt normal was our family was just it was a normal family in an extraordinary circumstance. And mm-hmm. so we felt very normal. We argued like siblings do. We had the same hair issues. We had the same clothes issues. Did you, did you have the bowl cuts? Like did your mum yes. give you the bowl cuts? Yes. <laughs> I actually just posted on social media a picture of me and I said, when you go to the same hairdresser as your mother, you know, it's just like. <laughs> you end up with this. I think, I think all of our generation somewhere in the archives have a, a haircut courtesy of mum. And if there's a boy in the family, there's a bowl cut. Yeah. Mine was perms. Oh, yeah. Disaster. See, I yeah. was dying to get a perm. Never allowed to have the perm. No, you'll be glad that you didn't. (laughs) Those pictures haunt me now. Yeah, I had a perm. Oh, did you? Yeah, but after I left school. Oh, well, you've done well then. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Mine was about eight. Oh. Yeah, it was terrible. Wow. That's early. That's perm early. Angela, you talk about your family and and we didn't mention that. Who was, like, what was your family? Like in in what, you know, is it your mum, your dad, brothers, sisters? So so there's mum, dad, and I've got an older brother and an older sister. I'm the youngest in the family, which means I get all the favours. Happy days. And I was the favourite. So sorry, brother and sister, you know. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) With the wisdom of hindsight, you've touched on the perm. Do you feel the teenage trappings and milestones were all the same? I think because we had grown up in such wealth and and I think in England there's like a class system and it still exists today to some degree. So you have sort of lower class, middle and and upper class. And I went to private school and so where all the the students there, their parents were either high class lawyers or doctors. But then we were in a whole other realm even above that. Sometimes there's kind of these stereotypes around wealthy people that they can be a little bit sort of look at me and and all about themselves. But because I wasn't even in any, I didn't fit in any of those categories, I was, I felt this incredible weight of responsibility that I have been given so much that I can either become like that stereotype or I can actually do some good with this. And so I think all the trims and trappings that can happen for teenagers, I never really went down that route because Mm. I just... I knew that I had a responsibility to what I'd been given. And so I I hope, and my parents might contest to this, but <laughs> I made some I made some good choices yeah, and, nice. and um yeah, tried to to do good. Well we have this it's actually a scripture in the Bible and it says, To whom much is given, much is required. Yeah. And so we've always all of us have always grown with that sense that something 
over and above what others are required of others is required of us. And so therefore we need to live our life beyond reproach and, and in such a way that is honouring to the blessing that we have in our lives. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm. So, Angela, you were talking before about the different sort of levels and classes of English society. And so, and you were saying that you were sort of an, another level above that. So I'm assuming that's the aristocracy. Actually, no, my dad was invited into to becoming a, a lord when I was an adult. And so okay. he was just kind of rising in his influence and he got into the political field and really got invited as a lord just by like he wasn't going for that it wasn't something that he had aspired he, to it just it just kind of happened but i okay. was already married at that point yeah okay so when you become a lord what sort of additional responsibility did your father have at that point in time well he obviously gets to have a vote in the house of lords so when bills go through they come through the house of commons go into the house of lords and they get to have their say i think there are requirements on you as a Lord that you have to turn up to so many different voting systems and you have to be present in the House of Lords for so many days or hours. And so there were, like, according to my dad's lifestyle, because he's a businessman that often travels the world on business. And so there were some kind of things that were restrictive to his lifestyle because he had to fulfill his commitment there. And I know that there's a few times that he actually had to present and give an argument on different bills and that. So which was a whole new arena for him because he'd never been in that world. And to be honest, we were very nervous because we know what the British press are like. Yeah, yes. Um, You're a politician for one and then you're wealthy and you combine those two together. But actually he handled it very well. I'm sure he did. And with a father as a lord, you, his daughter, does that come with its own title bestowed upon you? Yes, I am actually called the Honourable Angela Williams, which really means absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds impressive. It does sound impressive. And I can't think of one circumstance that I've ever used it. Yeah, Couldn't get into Wimbledon or anything like that? (laughs) Well, I could have got into Wimbledon anyway without the title, I think. No, I think the only time I tried to use it was to apply for my Australian visa. And, you know, you've got the tall poppy syndrome over here. So oh. I think it took way longer oh. because I put it in there. Yeah. I thought, we're going to turn this around. Okay, this, show one this, goes this goes to the bottom of the list. Yeah, the Honourable. Like, who does she think she is? <laughs> Angela, with access to wealth and having a father who was a philanthropist, I can see how you would become involved in charity, and especially the values that you've discussed already and, and your family values and the importance of having extra and giving extra. What is intriguing is how a girl from such a privileged background, and I would imagine a somewhat protected existence, becomes the founder of a charity that reaches out to the sex workers in the red light districts of England's most violent cities. Like that's quite a reach from yeah, yeah. the environment I mean, you grew up yeah. in. It's a it's the opposite extreme, that's for sure. And I keep asking myself that question, to be honest. How did I end up there? And I, I, like I think back now because it's 10 years since I've moved on from Embrace and, and been living in Australia and I think, did I really do that? Because it, it does seem so far reaching for me. But I think at the time I'd not long been married, just had my son who was only a few years old and I'd walked through a whole journey of... My husband actually was an alcoholic and we'd walked through this journey of him in was now in recovery and I just really got this heart and compassion for people in that circumstance. 
And I knew that I was in a position to be able to do something about it. So I just started to do research and look at my local area and think, okay, what's available for women in really desperate circumstances? Just saw a few charities and eventually it kind of led me to looking a bit further afield. And and there was one in Manchester. So I don't know if you know much about Manchester, but it's a very big city and there is a lot of crime in Manchester. Anyway, a charity there just said, well, we could tell you what we do here. Um, It's in the red light area. Why don't you come and see for yourself? Mm -hmm. And just something in me was like freaking out, but like, I know I've got to do this. Like, how can I refuse this? So... So I went and I was totally innocent, totally, I had no idea. My only concept of a red light area was Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. (laughs) So I was expecting these nice long silky boots and, you know, made up. Yeah. And I I guess that's probably the truth for for many people. Anyway, I went and and went on this outreach. And I remember that we went in a car and there was like five of us in the car. And I went with another couple of girls and... We were just in this car and the team were getting out and they were talking to the girls and you can see that there was a lot of relationship there. And I was just shocked, kind of frozen in my seat because their appearance was nothing like I'd expected. And they really were just like their clothes looked like they'd been on them for days yeah. and they weren't groomed and yeah, it was actually just such a disturbing image to see and I'm like I can't believe that people live like this and then I'm thinking about my life and I'm thinking about all this beautiful luxury I'm living in and I'm like sitting there feeling like how am I meant to process this yes how am I meant to live my life comfortably knowing there are people in this situation anyway eventually they told me get out the car it's your turn to go and and talk to this girl and uh, I'll never forget it and I talk about it in my my book her name was Andrea and she just stood there and she'd got like a short skirt on. She'd got these long red hair and she was kind of one of these really bolshy type of, do you say that word, bolshy? Yeah, you can. Yeah. 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 You know what that means, yeah. Um, like she, she was kind of really out. Like yeah. outgoing. Yeah. Outgoing, yeah. yeah. Vivacious. Yeah. And she just wanted to shock you by telling you the most outlandish yes. things she could possibly say. Anyway, eventually she comes up to me and she kind of, puts her elbow on me and mm. says, hey, you've got a pretty face. Fancy some work? <laughs> <laughs> and I literally flo- froze on the spot. I was like a rabbit caught in the headlights. I yeah. did not know how to respond to this. And so she starts laughing at me, like taunting oh, me, yes. because mm. she can see you're just so innocent. You have mm. no idea. Yeah. Mm. She's obviously lining you up yeah, for that was. complete reaction. She's like, and she's getting a kick out of that. Mm. Uh, anyway, she begins to open up a little bit and then she told me that just two days before she'd given birth and she'd had a little oh baby girl. Oh, my gosh. And inside I was broken and I didn't want to show it on my face. And, you know, I asked her, like, how are you out working? Oh. Like, I'd not long had a child myself. Oh, and I'm yes. like, Ooh. I know that there's no way I could be out here doing this. And I'm like, how can you be doing this? And she says, well, there's other stuff you can do, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. Well. Heartbreaking. And then I asked where her baby was and she'd left it with a neighbour. And I just stood there at that moment and thought, how can I not do something about this? Mm. I have the resource. I have all this kind of backing of charity. How can I not do something about this? And it was that moment really that just said, right, that's it. I'm going. I'm, I'm in. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's you know, the little privileges in life, like being able to spend that time with your baby when you have it, that you take for granted that mm. some people just don't get. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, Angela, I read um, an article about your observations of the women that were working on those streets and that your preconceived ideas of what led them to this line of work were challenged because um, most were so consumed with drug addiction that they were trapped in that lifestyle. And I read a book called The Five about the five women who were murdered by Jack the Ripper in the 19th century and this widely held belief that they were all prostitutes is wrong and that the one thing that they all had in common was they were alcoholics and they were sleeping rough. And I'm just curious as to know uh, or to know what other observations of these women challenged you. Were there any other surprises as you got to know them? Yeah, like you can you can look at their behaviour in, and it's very obviously impacted by drugs and alcohol. Um, and they want to kind of push you away, particularly if you're coming to them with a service that is something you're doing something kind. They actually can't take it. They find that that it's just inconceivable for them that somebody would want to do something without there being strings attached. So they always assume that there's strings attached. And they will try and push you away because they want, they've got a narrative in their head that says everybody in the world rejects me. And so they don't want you to accept them because they want to believe that everyone in the world rejects me. Therefore, I have a right to be where I am. It kind of justifies their position. But actually, when you get beneath the surface of that, they're just girls like you and me. Mm. That I look, some of them, they're so from such diverse backgrounds. You know, one of them was a university graduate. They just made a poor choice. They got together with a guy at high school and, you know, he led them round the, down the wrong track and they've come from a loving family. And yep. there's just no kind of real pattern as to how it happens. It's just a sequence of poor choices. And when I saw that, I had great compassion and empathy for them because I'm like, wow, that could be me. Of that course. could have been me. It could, and I know that. Like I've took some of my nieces out, for instance, when they were a lot younger, and and I, I did it as an exercise for them to see. You know, if you make one poor choice, yep. this is this is this could be you. potentially, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and. Yeah. and um, you know, the girls are actually really beautiful women, and when they get over that barrier of trust with you as soon as they begin to trust you. That relationship just really blossoms and mm. you can see how not only was I able to help them by saying, hey, we believe in you, we're here for you, we'll walk with you through this journey, which is all they really need, but it helped me incredibly. It yes. helped me. I can imagine that. Yeah, it's I was just... I was going to ask actually, that was my next question as to how they responded to kindness, but you've actually answered that. Initially they they're not interested in kindness because they've got that barrier up and they're protecting themselves, as you said. So yeah. isn't it just an interesting mm. observation on that? Mm. You know, these women are in a very difficult circumstance, yeah. yet it's a trait a lot of us women have, even in our own privileged lives, where if somebody yeah. will offer for help and we automatically push back because we don't want to burden anyone else. I think it's sometimes mm. it's an issue of pride, isn't yeah. it? Like, it, yeah. and, and, and you see, I know once I, yeah, I passed a, a lady that was sleeping rough in the street and, I, you know, I don't give money, but I do mm. go and, and I just said, I just went and bought some lunch for yeah. her and I, I went and handed her this lunch and she looked at me and says, 
I don't need your lunch, thank you very much. I can get my own. <laughs> and then I realised that I'd actually really offended her. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter where you are in society. We all have that element of self-worth, self-value and, and yeah. pride that we carry. And, yeah. So true. And on that, you've mentioned that walking them through their journey, what did the charity actually do for these women? How did they help these women? Yeah. Well, we weren't qualified. We didn't have kind of, we had a few skilled people on on our team, but really we just created an environment where they felt it was home, that they could come in. So we did a drop-in and we did an outreach and we did a drop-in twice a week and we would give them a hot meal. So you had a base. Yeah, you had a building or, or a room or something like we that. We hired a room. It was there was mm-hmm. a church actually right in the red light area, and and they would just come into the into the church, and we would do arts and crafts. We would always uh, make sure that they were achieving something, and it could be something that's craft um, based, or sometimes we had. Um, we had somebody come in with a whole load of drums, and then they're all beating into the rhythm of the, and. Just that sense of accomplishment, I felt, did an incredible amount for them. Yes. And they would go home with pictures and we did mosaics and we made scarves and, and they actually had something that I've done this, I've made this, I've put the hours into this. And watching that process in them was just amazing. And creating this environment where you didn't have to fit a certain criteria, you didn't have to be at a certain low in life to access this service. You could just come just as you are. And the people there, they just loved them. They were there to chat with them. We signposted if they needed other services. Obviously, there were drug-related issues and and we were connected with all the drug services and and the council in their programs. But we would signpost them there. We wouldn't try and take that on ourselves. We were Mm. qualified to do that. Mm. And it's very complex addiction. It's so complex and it takes great motivation and you've got to have a clear plan and you've got to have access to particular services and there's not many people that can just do it completely on their own without any help whatsoever. I think there's certain elements that have to be in place. So you have to Mm. have those drug services, you have to have the right medication, you have to have the social workers. But often we miss this element of community and they don't have that because they have to fit a certain criteria to access that service. Mm-hmm. And usually what I found in the UK anyway is that girls that were working or prostituting themselves were on the bottom of the ladder. And so they actually were the last people to be able to access services, uh, even things when it comes to their children, mm. uh, because the stigma around them was just so, even even in like the government agencies, the stigma around them was so bad that they, they couldn't even access some of those services. So to provide a space that they could come and just be loved and say, hey, we believe in you. We know that you can do this and, and call out all the positive things about them actually enabled them to then really go and, and almost self-manage themselves to get out yeah. of the situation. And, you know, just to provide that place of a little bit of a glimpse of it a normal life, doing a bit of craft or doing something amongst some people where there's no judgment. Yeah. yeah just we, we actually involved, this was a, a risky thing to do in some reg- regards, Was but we involved men on our volunteer team a lot of um, charities that work in the red light area don't, and I mm. actually think it's of detriment. We always made sure it was safe. It was within a couple, mm-hmm. and so the men would come out. And I actually found the, ma- the male volunteers were far more compassionate than the female ones, yes. and it's because they actually 
feel that men have done them at such an injustice that they want to put that right. Yes. And actually that was so healing for a lot of the women. Mm-hmm. And to see them in like really healthy relationships was just a beautiful thing. That is beautiful. That, um, that service that you provided, was it a seven-day-a-week thing? No, we did two days a week mm-hmm. for the drop-in and then I think there was a couple of nights that we would go out on outreach. But in between that, we would still be supporting them. Mm, so yeah. Um, yeah, so what was the outreach? Talk us through that. Yeah, so outreach, we would have, we had a car. It was just labelled with Embrace. We had about four or five people on a team. We would get in the car. We'd have food and drink in the back of the car. We'd just drive around the red light area and when we saw a girl, we'd stop, open up the car, they'd come. We had hygiene bags, um, so it had like uh, sanitary towels, condoms, toothbrush, toothpaste, soap, just basic hygiene things for them. And then there was hot drinks always. And we'd just stand at the back of the car talking to them while they drank and their drink and at their food and then they'd be off. Yeah, just that he, little bit of connection, you know? Yeah. Mm. We all talk about picking up the phone, talking to a friend or having a conversation. It's just that little bit of connection mm. that just uplifts you and makes you feel, actually, I am worthwhile. goes a long way. And doing it, it consistently as well meant that, you know, as time went yeah. on, they actually began to open up quite a lot about their life. And so you almost feel like you become like a sister role to them, yeah. which is really great. That is really great. Mm. Did you ever find yourself potentially in any dangerous situations or life-threatening moments with you and the girls or? Um, yeah, I mean, I talk about some of those in the book. There was, uh, I actually wasn't on team this night, but our team was out and um, spoke to a couple that speak to pretty much every week because we'd often embrace the men as well. So they would call them girlfriend, uh, boyfriends, but of course they were uh, what we would refer to as pimps. Um, and we realised that if we can e- embrace the men, then actually the women will open up a lot more and, mm. and, and you can get closer that way. So this couple would always come to the back of the car every week, came to the back of the car, ate their food, drank their drink and disappeared. And uh, the team went off, came, we kind of do a loop, takes about 10 minutes, back round, and then the whole area is cordoned off. The police are there, uh, flashing lights. Team didn't really know what had gone on, went home and I was in the office the next day I get a knock on the door and it's the the police and they say because we used to keep a sheet of everyone we saw and mm-hmm. what they were wearing and where they were said can we take your records please because there was a murder last night oh. and it was the man that had just he'd literally been talking to our team this couple they walked around the corner and he got stabbed to death 12 oh, I think wow. 12 times they found out who it was it was all over these two youths that had tried to um I think it cost the woman earlier in the day. Oh, they put wow. their hand up her skirt. They were trying to get something free of her. Free. And he just went and threatened them. Yeah. And then they went home and just got a kitchen knife and, and oh, they'd been watching gosh. him. So they yeah. must have been watching him yes. when our team were with your team. Him. Yeah, so that's just one of, of mm, many mm, kind of instances. A, yeah, but interestingly, I never actually felt really in danger mm. because... The girls, once they trust you, they protect you. Yes. <laughs> and even some of the pimps did because they didn't see us as a threat. We were there to feed no. them. And, yeah, that's and right. so they actually protect you, which, yeah. which you was actually part kind of, of their support network in yeah. a weird way. Yeah. It was kind of a weird scenario that yeah. I wasn't expecting Role reversal. to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Oh, fascinating. Um, can we talk a little bit about your book? As well. Your first book is titled Extravagant Life to Extravagant Love. And tell us how you came to be an author. 
Well, it took me a long time to get the courage because normally, you know, people with my background, we don't really like to talk about it because there is a lot of stereotyping. There is a lot of prejudice when it comes to people with wealth. And I was reluctant to want to talk about that. But actually, as I then went into the red light area, I thought, well, what is it that can actually connect me with these girls? Because my life is so opposite to them. How can I connect? And it was the fact that I understood what it means to be labelled. Yes. And it was actually, that was the, actually the thing that enabled me to have compassion and empathy for their situation. And so I wanted to pull that out, that actually this is an important book to write because we all suffer with the same things. We all have, it doesn't matter where we are in society, we all have insecurities. We all have things that I, I found I was unqualified, inexperienced. Mm-hmm. Why am I here? This mm. I had all those questions. Yeah. Those voices in our head. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, wealth doesn't protect you from life. And no, so absolutely not. I just felt that was a really important message to to be able to kind of bridge that gap, really, and say, hey, we're all people and we're all... We're all living life and needing relationships and connection the same as everyone else. And so, yeah, that's what actually compelled me in the end to write my book. And it's such a great message. Yeah. You know, it's just that everyone's got stuff. Doesn't matter who they are, what they've got going on. It's true. Everyone's got their stuff. Or particularly I felt, you know, when you have more, you feel like, what right do I have? to yeah. complain about mm. it. Yeah. And, mm. and actually you can feel a lot more isolated because you don't feel that, you know, you've got a right to complain. Yep. Yeah. It's so like when recently the floods and all the rain and I know myself and, and you would see people on television and everyone, a lot of the dialogue would go, but it's okay. Yes, I've been flooded, but it's okay because down the road they're worse off. Yeah. You know, it was, it was stressful to the people. Um, but it wasn't life-changing, so that was okay. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's like no one wanted to own up that, yeah, this sucks at the moment. Yeah. yeah. I think we're a lot more aware nowadays that we've got to kind of be self-aware. Mm. Yeah. That actually we do have this stuff and we do need to deal with it. And, yes, there are people that are worse off, but it doesn't invalidate how you're feeling. And mm. you Absolutely. Know. Can I just backtrack a little bit, like jump back to before my question about the book? Because I'm interested in the, in the girls that you worked with and supported. Were there any that actually turned their lives around to the point where they weren't dependent on that type of work anymore? Yeah, a few actually, and their stories are in the book. And it was always, actually, when they did that, it was always off their back. It wasn't anything that we did. We just created an environment where they felt value in themselves. And it's from that that they then think, okay, I can get myself. I can build on that. Mm. Yeah. And so there are a number that that have and and they ended up actually serving Embrace and and coming and being part of the outreach. And, you know, I've been to their weddings and I've seen them restored to their kids. And there's one one woman in particular, I think, I I always forget what names I've called them in the book. I think I've called her Olivia (laughs) because her names are different. And I'm like, I'm just so nervous I'm going to drop their real name. And there's this just beautiful moment where she's really took control of her life. Her life has totally changed. Uh, She's now volunteering at Embrace and she was getting married. And I just remember, I said, do you want to try on my wedding dress? And so she came to the big house 
by this mm. point, like she knew about my life because mm. not many of them knew who I was or anything about my life, but she was one that did. So I took her to uh, the big house where my wedding dress was and there was a moment where she stood in front of the mirror where I stood on my wedding day. Oh, wow. Mm. And she stood in my wedding dress and it was just this really beautiful moving moment of uh, looking at it because it kind of represents purity, doesn't it, yes. that her life is is very different. Did she wear it? Unfortunately, no, because oh. it didn't fit her very well. <laughs> I was bigger than her, so... <laughs> So she and you know you got to wear your own your, your own yes uh, thing mm. for your wedding and and but it, it was a beautiful wedding and she's still doing great so that is just it's good to and hear. What a fulfilling thing for you to be part of that woman's life. Yeah, I yeah, mean, I feel special. like I played a very small part because really, for somebody to overcome something like that, it has to be them that do it. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah, as we said, it's because it's so complex, but I suppose big things have small beginnings and, you know, embraces role in her life. Yeah. It might have been only something small, but it still was part of it yeah. that helped her, you yeah. know, take those steps. Yeah. And there were others a part of that journey of too. Course, and yeah. Um, so we all play our part yeah, we in all someone's play our life. Part. We're it's never true. going to be the whole part. We're no. just going to be a small part. Yeah. It's awesome. Angela, we've talked a bit about your book, Extravagant Life to Extravagant Love. What do you believe that or what would you like the biggest takeaway message from that book to be? Well, one of the strap lines I use there is life is not about how extravagantly we live, but how extravagantly we love. And to me, how we love one another and what we give to this world is far richer than anything we can gain. That yeah. is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have anything. I can't, like, come back with anything from that. Oh, it's it encapsulates so your thoughts and your ideas well, really, really well. When do we well. get funny? Because, you know, you guys <laughs> are <really> funny. <laughs> Well, you, you've been far too captivating. I know. I've just been sitting here just staring at you I like know. this. Yes. <laughs> when are the jokes coming? Come on, come on. Bring okay, on. come on, Trish. Come on, you're the girl. It's hard to really make fun when you're talking well, about is. such a serious charity. That, that's true, Even actually. for me. Even for you, That's Darth. awful. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And because we just want to give so much respect and empathy and love to the women working in that industry. And I agree with you 100% that where possible, where we can to support them. And and just it really resonated with me that part about, you know, your um, observation of the addiction, you know, being the common theme and having read that book mm. because it's like these these women, that, or those women that were murdered all those years ago in London, the poor things, like the backstory, it, it's such a sad story, they're, they're, the five of them. There was one that was a prostitute. The other four had at different times worked you know, they'd all been sleeping rough on and off and they might have had to do it, dabble in it just to get by, yeah. you know. But at the end of the day, they were all alcoholics. Yeah. And, and they just, they ended it. up, you know, in such poverty and desperate times and then they ended up sleeping rough and just yeah. at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. It's it was so, so sad. And it's so easy to happen. That's right. Yeah. And when you, when I was reading the backstory of these women, it was it was very, very easy, you know, how they slipped off yeah. and then they ended up going down that pathway of addiction and you ache for them. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, amazing. So because you haven't achieved much in your life, Angela, yeah. you're currently you... working on writing another book. Yeah. <laughs> Are we going to start getting that syndrome that you and I get? I Imposter guess? syndrome well, or no, don't impos- do enough syndrome? Yeah. What hashtag, have you been doing with your life, Syndrome? Hashtag, what have I been doing with my life? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
gosh. Sorry, I, back I feel to you. That, I feel the same way. Like there's so much more yeah. left to do. I hey? know, absolutely. Yeah, it's true. So currently writing another book. Without being complete spoilers, spoiler alert, we'd love you to give us some insider info on what book two is about. And, um, yes, we when book two's out, we'd love to well, I can't give you a date. Of, I can't give you a date of when it's out because I'm still writing it, and <laughs> I'm kind of writing it as I'm living it because Perfect. it's in this transition season. We're in yes. that age where our kids are moving out of of home. I have a son who's 19, and he moved to Brisbane last year, and and is in uni, and so. You know, oh, he's me. probably out partying with my 19-year-old daughter who moved to <laughs> Brisbane and said, well. We need to exchange notes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, he comes home at weekends, so at least I get that. But, um, yeah, I think it's th- it sends us into this kind of identity crisis of yeah. like, okay, Absolutely. you know, yeah. I spent all this time raising my my family, so what's next? What's next for me and what's next for us? And so really that's the name of the title of the book, What's Next?, and it's about rediscovering the you you forgot you knew. Oh, so my goodness. true. Uh, well, that's why we started the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> because why we, we wanted to have so these much... conversations with women about that very topic. Yeah. And uh, so um, sometime last year, I think I just had this kind of awakening moment where I'm like, what am I doing with my life mm-hmm. now? You know, yes, I've done. What do my I want to be when I grow up? What do I want to <laughs> Exactly. I felt like a teenager. I still, I do, still do yeah. feel like a teenager. I've done my season now of raising my son. Very proud of the young man that he is. But now it's time for me. Yep. Now it's time to focus on me. And so, and I, you know, I feel, I don't feel ashamed by that. I think oh, it's no. important that actually when we get to this time in our life that it's time to. Well, focus our on lives ourselves. are important, our lives are valuable. Absolutely. And so. I think that there's a whole lot of us now championing, championing, champion. <laughs> oh, you can say that. That's word, Championing. What are we doing? That's the champion. one. I speak the Queen's English. It's okay. <laughs> Excellent. I don't know what language I speak sometimes. <laughs> but the big movement for women in our age bracket going, okay, yeah. let's go, ladies. Yeah. yeah. Let's well, go. Absolutely. Mm. So this was me. I had an awakening last year, some uh, kind of mid last year, and I was out in the middle of the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, and, so beautiful. And and I'd been diving, and this was my first or one of my first dives in over ten years. Totally scared out of my head, forgotten that you can actually breathe underwater. <laughs> Taking in all this water, being somebody that's just. Not very comfortable underwater. Well, it's quite claustrophobic. Even snorkeling I find at times quite claustrophobic and, and spooky. Like I haven't actually <laughs> been diving as such. Like just you snorkeling. felt like you were being watched? Yes. <laughs> you are. We were once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were. Yeah. So we were this, at SeaWorld. And oh. <laughs> we were at SeaWorld. Oh. I have been snorkeling in the Great Barrier Reef too, I'll have you know. We were at um, SeaWorld. I we love it. We were at SeaWorld. But, so the kids were... You know, it was a few years ago, so they're teenagers now, but they were like teenagers, so younger. And Wiley, my son, was like, Mum, can we go diving in the shark tank? I'm like, no, son, no, son, no, no, no. <laughs> and then they say over the loudspeaker, because it must have been spring or something, oh, okay, today we've got a special two-for-one deal in the shark tank diving. And I, <laughs> Mum, and I went, oh, okay, yes, that's fine. You and Lily can go. I'm thinking, yeah, frugal. Two for one, beauty, saving money, winning. So oh. then we get there after I've told them we can do it. So we booked in and then I get there and they go, oh, yeah, no, they need an adult with them. 
Oh, for 50's sake. For 50's sake. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, and it was then, you. Then the kicker, I'm you like, had to do oh, it. no, but I don't. Sorry, kids, I don't have any togs. Oh, no, you don't need togs. We'll give you a wetsuit. Just strip <laughs> down to your knickers. I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you were trying to get out of it, weren't oh, you? Oh, my gosh. So then we're, we're snorkeling in the, the shark pool at SeaWorld. And Wiley has accidentally hit my flipper. Oh, my oh, gosh. Walking on water. Oh, I thought I was walking on water. <laughs> and every time, you, Mum, remember we're in the show? <laughs> so now whenever we go on any family holiday that involves snorkelling, he's whacking my flippers and I'm like, oh, I'll joke, mate. I'll joke. <laughs> now I want to be <laughs> your friend because I want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny. It is funny. And yes, that right. leads into the other time when we were oh. at <laughs> same situation. <laughs> High ropes course uh-huh. at Taronga Zoo. Mum, mum. No. Okay, today we have a two for one, one deal. Oh, brilliant. You take a go. Oh, we need an adult. Have you not learnt? <laughs> no. Well, next thing I'm, you know. Stop it. 20 foot in the air on a skinny little rope walking over. Trish. Wouldn't do it now. No, Upper no, body no. And lower body, those <laughs> weight strength ratios shifted a bit the last few years. <laughs> I want to get back to your scuba diving well, story. I would you. My stories are great. <laughs> Are your Andrew stories are excellent. Some of my stories. Yes, you... <laughs> I don't think I can compete with that. Mine all sound pale into insignificance. Uh, so, yeah, I'm in the Great Barrier Reef diving, just surfaced from this dive, and um, a minke whale comes oh, up. Oh, no gosh. way. Beautiful dwarf minke whale. And um, I was just, there was a moment, like, the dive instructor that I was with went off to go and get all the other divers, and I was, it, like, it was you couldn't see land anywhere. Oh. There was a little boat that we'd come on and I was on my own face to face with a minky whale and just this sense of wonder oh, yeah. just kind of came over me. And most people ask, well, were you scared? Actually, no. Like it's, it is a situation where I would naturally feel quite scared. But in that moment, I really just, I was so, felt so peaceful and you just swam around me. It was kind of like making friends. And I got out and I just started to cry and it's just, it did something in yes, me. And yep. at the same time, I was reading different books and that season in life. And I just thought, I've lost the wonder in my life. Mm. You know that you get when you're you're young and you, you see know, it you get in small married. children. Everything mm. they look yeah. at is wonderful. Yeah, and watching them grow and when they say their first word and you've got this amazing wonder. I think as we get over older and mm. we kind of tip over the edge a little bit, mm. we start losing that sense of wonder in our life and things are going and so that you know children are leaving home and then you know you start losing people in your life and mm. and so I've made this commitment that I want to continue to discover wonder in my life and so that has sent me on this wild journey of doing extreme things. And coming in to do the podcast with us today. And coming at wild, wild journey. extreme. <laughs> well, that's too wild and extreme, ladies. <laughs> well, I did wonder why you asked me. <laughs> Oh, I yeah, love so that. actually, yeah. um, just a, a d- in December last year, I actually did swim with sharks and they did a whole feeding. They got all the big tuna heads and we were oh, like right... in the sh- like you see on the TV shows, like in the cages. And we were not in cages, we oh, were on gosh. off the continental shelf and we were just up against the coral. And the dive instructor came and he, he brought tuna heads in in these oh. milk crates they were and it was literally from the end of your arm you could you could see and then just this frenzy of sharks big over six foot white tip silver tip black tip sharks just hundreds of them so I understand wonder yeah but I have to ask Stupidity. you why <laughs> I can understand floating with a beautiful whale. 
There's a shark I'm, frenzy on. I'm not so sure about it. I'm fully yeah. on board with Minky Whale on there. Yeah. <laughs> but the shark. I mean, you know, I could even, you know, I'm happy with a shark being in a cage but not in the middle of a feeding frenzy without a cage. It's pushing it too far. Well, I didn't say I have common sense. <laughs> Well, that's why we're all getting on so well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. That is a crack up. What a great story. I love it. Oh, so so this is what my book's going to be about. Okay, cool. Going wild in your 40s. Oh, yeah. What a yay. brilliant idea. Can it be 40 issues? 40 so you can actually be in your 50s as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> Head, heading towards my 50s. Yay. Mm. Oh, my goodness. So it looks like you have a pretty full schedule at the moment. So tell us what's in the pipeline for the future. Are there any other exciting projects apart from your book and yeah. swimming in the middle of feeding yeah, frenzy, what, shark feeding frenzy? What's next on the bucket list? Yeah, tell us. Well, I also did a skydive, so that was on my bucket list. Um, I'm actually looking more in the humanitarian areas now, things that I'm just in this time of overcoming fears and one of the fears for me is actually going into... I guess, some really devastating areas of the world and seeing people really in severe poverty and, and, and wanting to be impacted and wanting my heart broken, basically, so that I can see how can we actually help, what can we do. And that is actually probably more scary to me than jumping out of an aeroplane. Yes, um, more, definitely more confronting. And more confronting. No, so. no, I'm... I'm... <laughs> I'm uh, opposed to you two there. <laughs> well, I jumped out of an aeroplane and yeah, I yeah. no loved desire. It. I don't I don't want to do it again, but I absolutely <laughs> loved it. But the the day I did it was years ago when I worked in radio, but somebody had actually jumped the day before and there was a fatal accident. Oh, no. And so, Trish. And I jumped at the same place the next day. And I'm thinking, well, lightning striking twice. That's crazy. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. But it was back in the 90s and I had these pearl earrings <laughs> in, you know, the oversized pearl out. earrings. And nobody told, <laughs> nobody told me to take them out. And so, you know, when you jump out and you're in free fall, the wind and everything's flapping and I couldn't really enjoy it because all I could think of was, oh, my God, these earrings are going to rip my earlobes apart. Just didn't just oh. take them out free falling. <laughs> yeah, oh, hang on. <laughs> I would have lost back for sure. <laughs> that would have been terrible. I just realised how much elasticity has gone in my skin as I've aged because it's all oh flapping. My, oh, gosh. <laughs> You know, that, like did you get the video lost, footage lost where they, you could see oh. your whole face? Oh, oh. slow it down. Put it in <laughs> slow-mo. <laughs> no, it's not pretty. Did we have a little snippet of that to put on yeah. our socials? Angel? It's on my social. <laughs> we'll link to it. Yeah. And we'll slow it down and say, hey, here, everyone. No, we would not do that to you. I would. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, um, we're, we're friends now, you see. We we're going to yeah. go snorkeling together. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Stay away from my flippers, Andrew. Stay away from my flippers. Uh, I don't know if I want to go in that same spot. I'll go with the whale, not with the sharks. <laughs> yeah. I'm all on board for the minky whale. I do have this so, habit of encouraging other people on the journey with me, so just be careful. You might, mm. you might end up there. I do have that habit too, but it's normally when we're having a celebratory drink afterwards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's another journey. I'll yeah. take you on. <laughs> you want a journey? Go out drinking. Do we need to go back to the start of this conversation? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Angela, I feel like our time is coming to an end, unfortunately, because um, we're having a wonderful time sitting here on the couch so with you this morning. Fun. It's 
Awesome. But we do have a wrap-up question for you, and that is what advice would the not-quite-50-ish Angela give to the 20-ish Angela? If you could go back in time. Trust your instincts. I think we inherently know what's good for us and right for us, and so just trust it and follow it. So true. That's nice and simple. That's a simple message. Mm. And such a And forget the perm. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get a perm. Don't get a perm. Whatever you do, Pati- bad mistake. Especially, Especially at eight, eight years of age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but at eight, you know what's good for you. Oh, you know everything. You know what look you want to embrace. <laughs> You've got such a great oh. sense of self when you're eight. Angela, thank you so much for sharing your it's story so generously. I really do appreciate it. Mel and I both do, and it's been an honour to have you in. We love making new best friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. yeah it's been absolutely awesome. Yeah, it's such a, a glimpse into such an incredible life is, yeah. Yeah, amazing. and you're doing amazing stuff. It's such a great story. Yeah, yes, lovely. and Thank we you. want you to come back when number two, book number two is ready to <laughs> when number two is ready to go. When book number two is ready to go. We'll yeah, you need to re-clarify more that. about that. Yeah. <laughs> that statement. See, too. it was Angela when she said, When are you gonna be funny? I'm like, well, yeah. we've been so serious. And now she's just now Let's keep gone rolling. Wreck. You're on a roll now, Darls. You're on a roll. I don't know if it's on a roll or <laughs> That's it from us today. You can follow us on Instagram at don'tgiver50 or email us at hello at don'tgiver50.com.au. And remember our gorgeous 50-ishers and 40-ishers, life is for living, don't give a 50 because we're all 50 and awesome regardless of age and living is an absolute privilege. Thank you so much, Angela. That was awesome. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.